For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Today's guest is a master of many trades, award-winning games, New York Times bestseller. He's a writer, an author, and designer. Welcome, Matt Forbeck, to Epic Realms. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. I am so glad you're here. You know, some people ask, what came first, the chicken or the egg? But for you, what came first, like writing or game design? That's a tough question. I started out, obviously, as a kid wanting to be a writer, right? I, I did some writing when I was in high school and stuff, but I got into game design so quickly at such a young age, like about 13, that, uh, yeah, that really quickly took over a lot of my creative efforts. Um, the trick, of course, is back, this is in the 80s, and in those days, the idea that somebody could make a living as a game designer was kind of ridiculous, right? Uh, but I happened to be fortunate enough to grow up in southern Wisconsin, where uh, I was only about 40 minutes away from Lake Geneva, which is where Dungeons and Dragons was started uh, and originally published by TSR way back in the day. So uh, because of that, I was able to start going to conventions when I was like 13 years old and, you know, run around doing a whole bunch of stuff like that. And, uh, and you know, I would just drive up the road literally from my house to the place. And eventually I started playtesting games with some of the other XTSR designers um, like Troy Denning and Steve Sullivan and, and Gally Sanchez, et cetera, Andre Heyday. They formed a company called uh, Pace Setter, which did Chill and uh, Rabbit's Revenge and um, Star Ace and a bunch of other games. And uh, they invited me up to start playtesting games with them in the evening. So I would come up uh, once a week to playtest games after soccer practice. Oh, wow. Um, and getting involved with those folks. And then they introduced me to a guy named Will Neveling, who was the ex-vice uh, president of TSR. And uh, actually famously got ousted and then sued them for a stock option and won something like a million and a half dollars. <laughs> Good guy. Um, and uh, he kind of mentored me into doing this game design stuff when I was in college. And I've been doing it ever since. I got out of college and went and worked for Games Workshop on a student work visa. Okay. Uh, basically, I wanted to go over to UK and I, I wanted to go over to Europe and visit a friend of mine in Spain. I didn't have any money at all. And I didn't have any way to get over there. I didn't know anybody in the entire hemisphere other than that one kid in Spain. But I managed to land a student work visa for the closest company, closest country to, uh, to Spain, of which I spoke the language, which I also spoke Spanish, but they didn't have that. Um, but it happened to be they didn't have a work visa program. So I ended up in the UK and I just called up Games Workshop and said, hey, you guys hiring? I saw an ad in White Dwarf. And they're like, oh, sure, come on in. So, And <laughs> believe it or not, landed a job uh, and six months Later, they offered me a full-time position, um, and I turned it down because my girlfriend at the time was like, well, you know, it's one thing to be away for six months. It's another thing to be away permanently, and she still was finishing up college. Um, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're right. This is all the days before FaceTime, you know, before email even, honestly. Yeah, we were yeah. actually writing letters with stamps on them and stuff. 
And uh, yeah, I, so I came back. I came back on uh, Valentine's Day, 1990 to be with that girl. That's now my wife of, will be 30 years this year and a mother of my five children. So That's worked awesome. out pretty good. It was a good choice. Good so. decision. Yeah. yeah. And you still in the end, uh, end ended up working doing games. Yeah. I mean, it didn't stop me. Obviously. <laughs> uh, who knows? I mean, if I'd stuck around the games workshop, well, you know, all the guys I know that are not there anymore, like Rick Priestley and, and uh, Nigel Stillman and uh, such have moved on. Uh, Lindsay Priestley is still working there, I believe, in the Black Library, which is her fiction department. Um, but the people I knew who were running the company are, are, have moved on to other things. So I either would have done that at some point or I would have wound up running the company. But who the hell knows? I'm not. Uh, Tom Kirby was the guy who was running it after Brian Ansel when I was there. And uh, he was doing a bang up job. But that was many years ago, even then. Tom's been gone for a while. So, so when did you start writing novels? Um, well, I, I wrote a really terrible one in college, right? Okay. And then immediately put it away where nobody could ever see it ever again. So, Do you still um, have it? I do. And I think <laughs> one of my kids busted it out once and just laughed and laughed. And <laughs> like, no, you're never seeing that again. Forget it. Um, and uh, so what happened, though, is I, I always wanted to write novels. So I, I, I knew that Games Workshop and uh, TSR at the time, which was just being purchased by Wizards, they had novel departments. So I would approach their novel editors. So, you know, they're friends of friends at least. And sometimes yeah. I actually knew them. I'd say, Hey, you know, I can write that. And they're like, well, it's nice that you think that, right. <laughs> um, because even though I had written millions of words at this point for both of those companies, uh, the trick is that telling somebody you can write a novel uh, is kind of like saying, you know, I can run a marathon. It's like, yeah, technically you, maybe you could, but seeing as how you never have, you know, maybe done more than a quarter mile in your life, you might want to, you know, prove that first before we give you a contract. So, right. um, so they were like, oh, no, we can't do that. I'm like, oh, man. And I was griping about it at a convention. I think it was Gamma Trade Show or something like that. I'm like, man, if these guys would just give me a chance, you know, I've already written all this stuff. I know this stuff backwards and forwards. And, um, but they want to see you a published work. And I can't show them my college novel because that would eliminate me entirely. Right. right? And, uh, Ed Pugh from Reaper Miniatures was listening. I think he was across the table, maybe at the bar, next, or the, right next to me at the bar. He said, oh, what? What's that, man? I'll hire you to write a novel. I'm like, oh, really? So, uh, so Ed Pugh hired me to write a 40,000-word, very short novel based on Combat Assault Vehicle, CAV, which is their uh, their giant mech fighting mech game, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, here, 40,000 words, nickel a word, go. And I'm like, Okay, so I wrote it like crazy, turned it into him. Uh, he FedExed me a check without even looking at the file. He just saw that it showed up in his email box and said, here you go, Matt, here's your money. Like within months, it was printed and out because they're a game company, not a big novel publishing company. Right. So they can do that kind of stuff and get away with it. And then I was able to turn around literally at that Gen Con and say to Games Workshop and, and Wizards of the Coast, I said, hey, look, look. And they're like, hey, good. Let me see. Yes, that's a real honest to God novel. And they actually literally sent me contracts after that. So nice. it was, it was uh, because they knew I already knew the word, the background, and everything else in the worlds and all that kind of stuff. They knew I was easy to work with. I could hit deadlines and all that. I, I just needed to prove to them that I could string together, you know, thousands of words into a, a story that people were willing to read and pay for. Right. And once I did that, they're like, sure. So I ended up writing, um, I pitched a bunch of books to Games Workshop and I pitched a bunch of books to, to, uh, well, it was originally TSR. They hired me on to write a series. They had this thing called the Iconic Series that were written by a house named T.H. Lane. Okay. And I was going to be one of those. And then that line got canceled and the company got sent over to, got bought by Wizards of the Coast. So the next thing I know, they're like, well, what about something else? And I ended up writing um, 
a trilogy, their first trilogy of chapter books they ever did from the, uh, called The Knights of the Silver Dragon. Mm-hmm. And I had, I created the series. I wrote the first book in the series and there was, and then I wrote the last two and there was like 14 total. So, but other authors came in and built upon what I created for that, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and then for Games Workshop, uh, Mark Gascon, who had been working at Games Workshop when I was there, technically actually hadn't been working. He'd been laid off. Um, and I met him in a bar. I think it was a <laughs> yield solicitation. Uh, which was just around the corner from Low Pavement at the design studio we're at. And um, Mark said, hey, why don't you pitch me some stuff? So I sent him like 10 one-paragraph ideas. And, you know, he looked them up and down. And he picked the one I thought, this is just a joke. There's no way this is ever going to happen, right? It's just yeah. Toss it in there for fun because I like this stuff. And he says, how about that Blood Bowl one? And I'm like, <laughs> you're kidding, right? <laughs> He's like, no, no, develop that. Turn it turned into a pitch. I'm like, oh, fine. Okay. So I, I wrote like a one page thing. And uh, he's like, oh, that's great, actually. Give me an outline. Okay. Here's your outline. Great. We're signing on for a trilogy of novels. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm Blood Bowl. So, um, but for, I people that, for the people that are listening, you want to explain what Blood Bowl yeah, is? Yeah. Blood Bowl is a, uh, well, and, you know, it's a video game and stuff now. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. Games Workshops and publishing it for, Way too many years, 35 years, I guess, something like that. But Blood Bowl is essentially fantasy football, except for, you know, it's not like sitting around a rotisserie. It's fantasy football, in which the elves and dwarves and vampires and goblins and skeletons and dragons and tree men and whatever play football, American football, but mm-hmm. not really American football because it's what a British man in the 1980s considered American football to be like, right? When they're able to watch it once a week, one game on, bbc at three in the morning so there wasn't a lot of exposure to the right. rules didn't really understand it so the blood bowl ends up being something like a cross between american football rugby and soccer okay and it's just all over the place one of the things they hired me to do when i was there was uh, working the blood bowl companion which actually introduced rules that made it a little bit more like football but it turned out the actual original rules were fantastic so they end up you know the other editions of the game have just built on that so okay um, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. And the, the whole thing's like full of just really dumb jokes all the way through, right? Like uh, it, uh, the teams are like the Bad Bay Hackers and the Orkland Raiders. And <laughs> they drink Miller, uh, Killer Genuine Draft and Bloodweiser and, you know, they're the big sponsors. And yeah. It's just crazy. It's fun. But it's uh, so I wrote a trilogy of novels and all, it starts out with a guy who's a dragon slayer, a wannabe dragon slayer who screws it up entirely, gets almost the entire town killed, but manages to pick up a spear and down a dragon with it at about 50 yards. And this happens in front of a Blood Bowl scout, this little halfling, who says, oh, dear God, that's my next quarterback right there. That's my next thrower. <laughs> and, you know, boom, you're off to the races and you get to see it through his eyes. He's like, Blood Bowl, what the heck are you talking about? So, um, so I wrote a trilogy of novels for that. They hired me to write a fourth one that I wrote five issues of a comic book as well. Uh, and had a great time with it. And, you know, doing that right right now, I'm working on Warhammer 40,000 Tacticus, which is a mobile game uh, from Snowprint Studios. So the guys who did this game called Riven Guard that okay. came out. It's for iOS and uh, and Android. Uh, and right now they're doing a soft launch for the uh, Warhammer 40,000 Tacticus uh, in a number of countries. I think it's mostly in Asia and maybe Australia. I forget. But a lot of times what they do is they'll do, you know, these companies do mobile games. They'll do these soft launches in, in smaller markets with the idea that we'll work out the bugs now. But, and, you know, when we're not embarrassing ourselves in front of millions of people, just right. thousands of people. And uh, then we'll move on to the bigger markets when we feel more confident about it. So 
Uh, they've been having me write the story for the first three uh, campaigns for this so far. I'm on the third one right now. Uh, and those are basically Warhammer 40,000 campaigns, right? You know, this, this little tactical war game that you get to play. It's a lot of fun, actually. I enjoyed, you know, I, I, you know, I don't work in the art or the gameplay or anything like that, but I, I enjoy playing with it. It's a ton of fun. Uh, but I get to string the missions together and try to make some story sense out of them. Which yeah, is and that's some of that is what makes sense. those games fun is the stories. Like uh, I think so. <laughs> like uh, these days, like the art is, you know, it can be amazing art and a horrible game, or yeah. and but it could be a horrible art. But if the story is really good, I'll play it. <laughs> well, I, I have this long-standing rant I do because I'm also on the International Game Developers Association mm-hmm. Writers SIG, which is special interest group. I'm on the board for that, and you know, for about. Christ, 15, 20 years now, we've been advocating for having more story in games, right? Because originally the guys who wrote story for games were just the programmers who said, well, we got to string this stuff together somehow, right? Right. Um, but, you know, to me, the, the thing about games and stories is sto- once you have that original technology, whatever it happens to be, whether it's a match three game or uh, a first person shooter or whatever the heck it is that you're playing, um, or you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, eventually the that's that's the most exciting thing in the world you're just like oh this is great fun i'm wearing all this great stuff i'm playing these new things but eventually it gets boring right there's only so many permutations of that so then you're like well how do i get people interested in this and how do i set this up to make it more intriguing for them and the answer is generally story right um and it can be just like okay now instead of you know it's not just a chessboard these chess pieces are actually getting up and i'm gonna have a little bit of lore for each one of them and but then we're gonna do a campaign and we're gonna tell you why this battle is important why this matters, what happens. And then we build it up. So, you know, you're starting out, you're just, you know, young farm boy or girl running off into the woods and learning all this stuff. And then eventually we, you build up to the, where you're, you know, conquering the universe. And, um, you know, story is the kind of thing that allows you to do those things and feel attached to them and to care about them, right? Uh, and so I think that's true whether or not you're watching a film or reading a comic book or play a game, you know, even if it's a tabletop game where you're making up the story with your friends around the table or a video game where you're having it, fed you more because you know you're not coming up the story so much as you're playing through a story in a lot of cases right although sometimes you get spontaneous stories occur too and that's just amazing as well do you do you play games yourself i play (laughs) yes um i play lots of games i don't i don't have a uh an ongoing role-playing campaign these days i haven't had for many years probably since before my kids were born okay Uh, but part of that's because as a game designer i'm not i'm not your regular gamer right i'm not the guy who sits down and says I'm going to sit down and buy this game for a hundred bucks and then play the hell out of it until I get bored. Right. I'm the guy who sits down and says, well, I got this game. I'm going to play it once, figure out how it works, dissect it, vivisect it. And then I've got what I want out of it. So right. I'm moving on to the next thing. And it's not because I don't want to play the game forever. In fact, if we had a game that really hits well with the kids here and we can play together, we'll play it over and over. Wingspan is the biggest one in the house right now. Yeah. Everybody's like, when are we going to get the new expansion? Okay, we got the expansions. Let's the, play. The, the video game version or the board game version? We can play the board game version, okay. right? And we just love that. Um, and, you know, the kids play all sorts of video games. I've worked in a lot of different video game companies. And one of the, uh, yeah, as a freelancer, one of the first things that happens always is they sit down and say, uh, have you played this game? It's our game is kind of like this, this crossed with this. And, you know, it's impossible to have played every video game, no right. matter how much we may try. Yeah. So my next stop after that first meeting is usually to GameStop or to Amazon to say, all right, I need this, this, and this, so I can figure out what the hell they're talking about. Um, that means we end up with a lot of consoles of different ages in the house and me playing lots of games. And then the kids get all that sloughed off to them. Yeah. So they, they love it. Right? <laughs> I bet. Are you working? Are you playing something? Anything right now? Uh, well, you mean it was video game or video game? 
I just finished Elden Ring. Okay. Right? Well, I, I beat Elden Ring. I was like, yes. So right now I'm going back through and like, well, I missed that little place there. And I missed this dungeon here. So I'm, I'm exploring a little bit more before I finally give up on it. Last year, my eldest son got me onto the Yakuza games uh, okay. from uh, what's it called? Like a dragon studios. Right. And so it's, there's like eight Yakuza games and then two more that are their judgment games, lost judgment, okay. uh, the judgment and lost judgment. So I played every one of those. I got hooked good. Uh, all the way through last year because uh, all the Yakuza games were now suddenly free on Xbox Game Pass. I'm like, well, oh, wow. I should finally try that. And boom, I played them all. And then the Judgment games, which were by the same studio, were not free. But I'm like, here's my money. Take it. I'm going to play these through. And I loved them. They're a lot of fun, right? Just a really good storytelling games. And my son, uh, Marty, who's actually doing uh, game design with me these days and writing nice. as well. Um, he was like, Dad, this is your thing. You're going to love this. So the next thing I'm going to probably tackle, which I've not played yet, is Disco Elysium. Um, and I've, I've been dying to play it, but I've been like, well, you know, I don't actually have a PC in the house because the kids keep wandering off with the PCs when they go off to college. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, okay. And then it's on Xbox, but I just placed an order for, but we, we own it on Steam. And I've got a Steam Deck on order right now. And I'm like, my eldest son, his Steam Deck came in. So I'm like, oh, it might should be here. I can, yep. So I'm kind of hoping to wait till that shows up. Um, but you know, who knows? I might crack and finally buy the Xbox version instead and just play that. So. When you play these games, does it make it easier when you, you know, when when you go in and you get somebody says, "Hey, can you do a, you know, a Halo novel for us?" Oh yeah, for those yeah. tie-in I mean, fictions. Like, is that like, well, I already know this game, or is that one of those ones where you go and get the game and then you write the tie-in book? You know, it depends. Uh, nowadays, it's mostly stuff where I'm already familiar with it, right? Because otherwise, I, I'll usually turn down an offer. Somebody else offer me something, I'll say, "Well, I'm not familiar with that, and maybe you should." hire this person over here really loves it. Right. Um, but on other times it's like, well, no, um, yeah, I love that. Like for instance, when the halo novels came my way, uh, I had written a novel for pocket books for Ed Schlesinger over there. It was my editor and, uh, based on guild wars, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was an MMO and they hired me to do a novel that was going to bridge the gap between guild wars one and guild wars two. Right. And I had not played any of that stuff at the time. But I knew people, Jeff Grubb from uh, TSR back in the day, who I had known, was one of the designers on uh, one of the lore people for Guild Wars. And so um, they had a bunch of us pitch ideas. And I, I'm like, how do you tell an exciting adventure story that spans 250 years and gives you all this background and all these different things? And I'm like, oh. so I, I swiped from the best. I basically stole from the Canterbury Tales. So it's an adventure story that goes, but it's a road movie, right? So you're going from one spot to the next. Okay. Every time you stop a camp, one of the characters stops and says, let me tell you a story here, right? And the neat thing about that is it allows them to frame the things that have either just happened or just about to happen to give them context you care about them. Right, and right. coincidentally also allows us to you know, do a lore dump essentially and say, and you guys who don't understand about this stuff, this is what this is really about. So, um, so that worked out pretty well, but the problem was the game was still in development. So uh, that meant it wasn't just shooting at a moving target, it was shooting at an exploding target. Because it was going to <laughs> and I ended up... Uh, at the end of the day, we ended up hiring Jeff into Jeff Grubb to be my co-author on it because he was, even as the guy writing the lore in the studio was behind and could not keep up. And there's no way in hell I was going to be able to pull it off. So, uh, so Jeff came in and did a draft. And I did a final polish over that just to make it sound more like me yeah. uh, in my style. Uh, but it came out pretty well. And then um, when uh, Pocketbooks got the uh, Halo license, I think it came over to them from uh, Tor. And... I actually saw an announcement about it. So I was writing Edge. I wrote Edge Schlesinger. I said, God, Ed, you better hire me to write these. And Ed writes me back and says, 
dear Matt, I was just writing you a letter right now, you know, an email <laughs> to ask you if you were interested. And I said, well, the answer is yes. Because Halo is the game where I, I taught all my kids how to play first-person shooters on Halo. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I've been playing it since the Xbox came out. And uh, in fact, I actually got, I was interviewing Bungie for a freelance gig two years, three years before uh, Halo came out. And I was down in Chicago back when their offices were there. I was for some fantasy game. Uh, John Scott Tynes actually got the deal. And John is now one of the guys who's heading up D&D over at Wizards of the Coast. So oh, nice. Doing okay. Good guy too. I've yeah. done stuff with him over the years. Great, great human being. Um, and uh, while I was at the Bungie Studios, they actually said, "Hey, let me take you over and show you this." And it's like, "Ooh, this is the Halo demo, right?" They're just you know, before it even been announced, and they're like, "Look, that's the Warthog. You can actually see different color dirt comes off the tires depending on what it's running on." Like, yeah, and this is back in the day when Unreal Engine, like Unreal One, was the biggest damn thing. Yeah, in the world. we're like, I'm like, yeah, I was in love with Halo from early days, so. Um, so the, when the chance came to write Halo novels, I'm like, yes, sign me up. So uh, no, no trouble there at all. And I ended up writing three of those and, you know, it was a, a blast working with those guys. So, um, and, you know, I've known a lot of guys at Microsoft over the years. Turns out what game I worked on 20 some years ago that was being run by Microsoft at the time, just won a Peabody award, right? Oh, wow. um, the, the Peabody's, which are, you know, for media, um, they finally decided to start um, acknowledging interactive stuff, right? That's good. So for the first time, and, you know, it takes people a while to catch up. I understand. Um, yeah. But they decided to give out legacy awards because of that saying, okay, see, these are some of the most amazing things over the last 20 some years that we've missed. And one of those was for a game called the beast, which was a, uh, the, the world's first big alternate reality game. And it was a promotional game that we developed for AI, which was the Steven Spielberg film that he took over from Stanley Kubrick. Right. Okay. And this came out many, many years ago. Um, but what we did is if you watch the trailer for AI at the bottom of it, it, it if, if you freeze frame it, which was a hard thing to do back in those days, because you had to sit there with your thing, your mouse and try to pause things. It said Janine Sala, sentient machine therapist. And you're like, well, what the hell is that? <laughs> so, um, an early version of Google or Yahoo or Ask Jeeves or whatever was going back in those days. That would lead you down a rabbit hole of websites that we had developed from, I think it was 100 years in the future, right? Um, and it wasn't just the one thing. So you got in this thing, it was actually a murder mystery. Uh, but then the murder mystery was connected to all sorts of other different things. I was developing like uh, websites that had standings for giant robot battles, um, you know, for mech, you know, mech fighting and all this kind of stuff, for mech fighting leagues. And they were, you know, you know having to develop all the background for that. Right. And including like Japanese cell phone games that were about uh, tea ceremonies and things, right? It was just really, really involved. And uh, uh, the guys heading it up were Jordan Weissman, who was at, uh, founded Fast and then was at Microsoft at the time because he had sold Fast Interactive then. Pete Fenlon, who was right. with Iron Crown and then was with Catan later, is now with Asmodee. Uh, Elon Lee, who founded... Um, Exploding Kittens, and Sean Stewart, who's a fantastic writer as well, and has done a ton of great uh, novels and, and such as well. Um, so I, I got to work with those guys and a guy named Alex Irvine, who's another writer who does a lot of this kind of stuff, and a bunch of other people. I probably never know their names because there were a bunch, there was, you know, dozens of us working. Right. On. But that one on Peabody, I'm like, that's so freaking cool. Pete actually called me up the morning it was going to be announced and said, Matt, I have something to tell you. I'm like, oh, good. This is going to be good. So, <laughs> Uh, and Pete's just one of the, my great friends in the industry. I mean, we've done vacations together and, you know, 
uh, wandering around Key West, had uh, slept on a boat in Key West and done whitewater rafting and uh, just fantastic guy. One of my best friends. Awesome. When you, what do you think of the new Halo movie that's been announced? Are you excited for that? I'm excited about that. I mean, I, I haven't watched the whole Halo TV show, right? Um, uh, the TV show is uh, what, like four or five episodes in it. I've only managed to watch the first two episodes, but I think the guy that they got playing the Master Chief is actually pretty damn good, right? Uh, he pulls it off. I mean, the uh, the Halo TV show is different than the Halo lore that comes from the books and the novels, but that's yeah. part of what you do, right? Right. That's just, you know, it, not everything wants to match up. And uh, for one, you want to lean into the strengths of the medium that you're working in. Uh, you know, doing something that would all be from a first person point of view as you're running around shooting aliens as a TV show would be nauseating for one. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, like Doom, right? Exactly, <laughs> with the rock. Right? Yeah, we, we and we saw how that worked, right? But you never <laughs> know. I mean, somebody else is going to come up with a way to actually pull that off. And it's going to be fantastic. Right? There actually were a couple scenes where they did first person stuff in the, in the TV show. But, you know, fortunately, they did not stick with that the entire time. So. The, the Sam Raimi Evil Dead cam where it's exactly like that oh, did well i guess <laughs> well I, you know sam's doing all right for himself i just saw the dr strange movie this weekend with my kids i, I haven't seen it yet i i need to i need to see it, it if, for, if for no other reason to see uh the bruce campbell hey, bruce campbell's in it raising right? everything sam does and uh and those are michigan boys right so I, I i never met them when we were out there but i went to school in ann arbor and it was a bit younger than they were but uh man when i was reading their biographies and i'm like man this is just all the stuff i know from back then it's just too much fun see these Detroit boys do some good. Um, but when you're watching uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, there are some moments there you're like, yeah, only Sam Raimi could do that, right? And it's just him all the way. So Right. And I, yeah, but, yeah. I'm I'm very excited for it. And and it's nice to see him back in the fold with Marvel. Yeah, exactly. Haven't done three Spider-Man movies, you know, which were, in, you know, and in, in the day, the three best superhero movies ever made. Yeah, it's kind of, it's almost like the start that. of it, really. Yep. I know a lot of people credit Iron Man, but really... Well, if they hadn't had those Spider-Man movies, they wouldn't have had the money. You know, nobody would have trusted Marvel to actually go off and make the Iron Man movies. So right. in that sense, absolutely correct, right? And of course, doing the Spider-Man movies is one of the things that helped bring Marvel out of bankruptcy in the 90s because that's when they started selling off uh, movie rights to a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. That's why Spider-Man is still with Sony and that's why, um, you know, the X-Men were with Fox until Disney bought them and now they own that as well. And yeah. The Fantastic Four, et cetera, so... How did you get uh, into into Marvel? Were you always a big Marvel fan? I was huge into Marvel, man. I was uh, I started uh, learning how to read on Marvel comics. Really, um, my dad was a comic book fan when he was a kid. Although his mom threw a lot throttled him when he went to college, so you know I don't have that stack of Golden Age stuff. But um, you know, I learned one of the comics I remember reading early on was Spidey comics, which were uh, developed for kids, like you know six and up. And I started reading them when I was like three, and they were. Uh, they were teamed up with the electric company, which was uh, the show that came on after Sesame street. Okay. If you're of that era, right. Uh, from the seventies growing up. And uh, this guy named easy reader with this goofy hat and sunglasses and reading a book said, Re Hey kids, reading is cool. Right. And, uh, and then Spider-Man actually would make appearances in costume on the electric company as a live action TV show oh, wow. and wander around. And he was really goofy looking at me in this funny costume um, that all was, you know, you know, licensed through Marvel. The funny part is you find out years later that Easy Reader was actually played by Morgan Freeman, right? Uh, who's now the voice of God and, you know, one of the yeah. most renowned and venerated actors of our time. So, yeah. Uh, but he started out playing Easy Reader on Sesame Street. I didn't know that. On the, the electric company sounds like good stuff. But yeah, I started reading Marvel comics and, you know, 
basically my brother and I teamed up, we would take our allowance and go buy comics every week. And he would buy X-Men and I would buy Spider-Man or Batman or whatever. And uh, then we'd swap comics and we'd just keep reading them that way until we, and even when I got, went off to college, he kind of stopped doing it then, but I, I kept reading them through college and beyond. I've worked on a number of different uh, Marvel games over the years too. And, and actually DC stuff too. So it's been good fun. How is that to go, Hey, this is something I grew up on and now you're producing content for them. It's, it's a real kick, right. You know, to be able to say, you know, I get to put words in Spider-Man's mouth or Wolverine's mouth or whatever. It's, it's neat. But on the other hand, you also feel the, the pressure because you're like, Oh man, I don't want to, you know, this is something that matters to me personally. Yeah. But I also know there are a lot of fans out there. So if I screw this up, I'm going to hear from it. Um, so, and you know, rightfully so I'm not going to argue, with that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's tricky. You know, I, like you know, some of the stuff I've done, uh, I did a Marvel heroes battle dice game for playmates toys. that came out like, geez, almost 20 years ago now, I guess wow. maybe 18 years ago. Um, and that actually had television commercials and, and it was in Walmart and Toys R Us and Target and all that stuff. Um, and I've worked on a couple different Marvel MMOs just doing you know, barks and dialogue bits. Barks yeah. are the bits in, in video game where uh, the character says something at random, right? It's not a, uh, it's not part of a, of a cut scene or a cinematic or anything. It's just like uh, those, you know, the dialogues when they're tapping their foot saying, okay, come on, moving on, you know, or yeah. hey, I've been shot or ouch, I need help over here, you know, that kind of stuff. When you write a bark, you have to usually write like 10, maybe 20 variations on it, right? Because oh, okay. then they have the voice actor going to do like, you know, three takes in each one of those. And then they can randomly pull those. So it doesn't sound like the same thing every time because it would drive you nuts. Yeah. Right? You're the same voice doing the same thing. It gets boring pretty quickly. But if you can hear, you know, 10 different variations done three different ways, that quickly, that doesn't become boring as quickly. And, you know, hopefully you don't hear it as often. So, yeah. But I tell you, if you've been writing these things right in the first, you know, 20 is okay. Maybe, maybe uh, 30. But, you know, once you start getting beyond that, you're like, oh, man, how do I say help? I'm hurt. <laughs> in, a, in a new way that that evokes character and is fun and is different it's, and that that character would say that way yeah exactly right and you're like mm, this is a challenge so, but you know you do it because that's the job and it's fun so, right no complaints so you did the uh the marvel encyclopedia too right oh. yeah i did two editions of the marvel encyclopedia um and a Captain America book and an Avengers Encyclopedia and actually a kid's book all for DK Publishing, which was a license or a Mar licensee yeah. of Marvel. Um, that was funny because I just happened to be at Comic-Con one year. I think I was pushing uh, the, the Eberron novels I wrote for TSR for, or for Wizards of the Coast for mm -hmm. Dungeons and Dragons, right? For their Eberron setting. Yeah. Uh, and I've written a trilogy of those and um, they had me out signing some stuff. I actually got to sign right after Carrie Fisher one day. She was signing Star Wars stuff for the Star Wars collectible card game. And I'm like, and she's like, I'll be right out of your way. I'm like, oh my God, stay here as long as you like. <laughs> um, and uh, I, so after, uh, after that, I'm wandering around. I got nothing to do. So I'm just going to all the different booths. And I dropped a business card with an editor. I said, are there any, are any editors here at DK? You got a Marvel license. I love Marvel stuff. I write all this stuff. You should hire me. And like three months later, I got an email from uh, Alistair Dougal over there saying, would you be interested in revising the Marvel encyclopedia for us? I'm, mm -hmm. Yes, yes, sir, I would. So, Was um, that difficult to like accumulate all the information for that? Well, the funny part is they, they revise every five years. And so I had to go back and make sure I knew everything from five years. And I also had to go back and make sure everything else was accurate too, right? The first part of the job is going through the book and saying, is this all accurate still? Because a lot of times it gets retconned or things have been changed or they've yeah. been re-explained or whatever. And then you have to see which characters need to be changed 
Um, so the first part of the job is trying to say, okay, what's the scope of this job? And the second part of the job is uh, now I have to do this, right? I've defined the scope of the job and now I've, uh, I've made my bed and I must lie in it. And it's, it's good fun though. But you know, I tell you, after, uh, after working on one of those books and stuffing all that stuff in my head, I usually stop reading comic books for about a year. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm like, all right, I've got it all now. I need to, <laughs> I need to go outside, touch grass. I need to, you know, find a, a play some video games, see my kids, my wife, whatever. Uh, get away from graphic stuff for just a while, right? And then sadly, yeah. you find out that the only the only video game you have is a Marvel. It's like, no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah. I tell you, one of the things I got hooked on was Marvel Puzzle Quest, right? Which um, my friend Alex Irvine writes a story for. He was one of the guys on on the Beast with us way back. Okay. Then. And I I just I don't know. Part of it's because I ended up having these health issues where I had to put, uh, I had glaucoma. I had to put eye drops in my eyes and you have to wait like five minutes in between them. You're like, okay, I got to sit here. I can't really do anything else. Um, I need, I got five minutes. Oh, I could do a match three Marvel game. Fantastic. Right. So now I've been playing it for like seven years, I think, or whatever it is. And, wow. Um, and the funny part is there are a lot of guys in the gaming industry that were all friends on Facebook, or whatever, and links through that. So like, Hey, we'll send people things. And it just does it randomly. I'm like, okay. Why not? You know, um, but I just keep up with it just like on a daily basis. Now it's Wordle is the other thing. Everybody plays Wordle. My entire yeah. family is playing Wordle. I'm so. intentionally keeping away from Wordle just because I know me and I know I'd be like, all right, I got to get this every day and my day would be wasted. <laughs> the genius thing about Wordle, though, is it's a one a day thing. Yeah. Right. So your That's commitment awesome. is low. On the other hand, my wife figured out that there were people who had archives of this stuff up. She has gone now back and done every Wordle ever made. And I'm like, yeah, she just got hooked good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, honey, that's okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Have your fun. It's good. And yeah, she she's not much of a gamer. She's not a video gamer. She does, yeah, she'll play the occasional tabletop game with us, but she's it's not her thing, right? But man, Wordle, Wordle has got her hooked hard. So did you uh play any of the uh because you do board games as well? Did you play any of like the the Marvel card game? Yeah, own. actually, God, what was it? Uh, Marvel Legendary, Devin Lowe uh, introduced himself to me at Gen Con when it was just in this playtest uh, form. It hadn't actually been released yet. And said, okay. hey, I'd like to show this to you and your son, Marty, who was, you know, like 12 at the time. Um, I'd like to show this to you and get your opinion. So I, we actually got to playtest it before it even came out. It was a blast, right? In fact, one of the first um, collectible card games I worked on was uh, Wild Storms, which was the collectible card game produced by wildstorm which was jim lee's division of image comics way back in the day yeah. now, jim is the creative director of, of dc comics he's in charge of yeah. batman's wonder woman everything else right uh but back in the day he had his own studio part of image comics that he had developed and uh a friend of mine who had been working at capital city comics had recommended me for this gig they basically he and a guy named drew bittner who was one of his editors had come up with a collectible card game uh but they knew it wasn't tight right yeah. So they're like, okay, let's get in somebody who's done this professionally and bring them in. So they brought me in. They flew me out to La Jolla, which is just north of San Diego, and um, and said, what do you think? I said, mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it wasn't terrible. It was just, it was overly complicated. I'm like, what you need to do is prune this down to the fun parts, right? And then uh, that's going to leave you with this. And then we'll have to figure out how we can make it even more fun from there. And so they actually hired me in to, to do that with them. So I, I got to sit down and co-design a game with Drew and Jim. And it was a blast. And it made the uh, John Neem many years later told me it actually saved the company because, you know, it brought him a lot of money at a time when the company was running a little shy of cash. And, yeah. you know, then they turn out, turn around a few years later and sold it to DC comics and, you know, made themselves quite a bit of cash that way too. John was actually the, uh, 
the producer, he actually became, you know, he worked for DC for many years and then um, became the publisher of Marvel Comics and was actually the guy who hired me to write the Marvel role-playing game. Believe okay. Me. Right. So like full circle 30 years later, <laughs> it's, or maybe you know, 27 years later, whatever it was. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's kind of funny that way that, uh, you know, it's like anything else in the world. Once you start getting into a field, people, your reputation follows you. You do good things, hopefully. And if you manage to persevere long enough and don't wash out for one reason or another, often it's because, uh, you know, you, you got expenses, you got sickness, whatever. You decide that you can't live the pauper's life of a game designer anymore. Uh, you move on to other things. But if you stick around, then those things come back to you. And then you can actually, you know, I've made a decent living doing this for, God, since 1989 now. So ever since I got out of college in 89. And you get to do stuff that you, makes you happy. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, I could have made more money as a banker. My father's an attorney. Uh, I could have made more money doing that. But uh, when I was in college, I was, uh, let's see, I was about 19 years old at the time. I, when I was in college, I had gotten a, a permission to do a dual degree program. My parents were like, you need, I want to be a writer. I said, and they're like, great, I'm going to go get an English degree. I'm going to get a creative writing degree. Great. But you, that's not enough. You need to get something that will actually pay bills. So I was good at math and science as well. So they said, well, which is why I'm a game designer too. I get both. Right. Um, and they're like, well, why don't you go into electrical engineering, and computer science as well. Right. Which was one major back in the day at Michigan. And uh, so I actually had a dual degree program where I was going to get a BA in creative writing and a BS in electrical engineering, computer science at the same time and get out in five years. And after about two years of doing this, I realized that this was going to make me a very miserable man in my forties. Right. Because what was going to happen is I was going to graduate. I was going to get that electrical engineering job so I could pay the bills and then write in the evenings is what I would tell myself. But I also knew that I wasn't that disciplined. I was going to want to go have a beer with my buddies, play some games, see my girlfriend, all this kind of stuff. And the chances of me actually getting around to writing that novel or designing that game, uh, we're going to fall dramatically depending on uh, how good that job was to me, right? And assuming I was good at the job and I actually liked it, I was maybe never going to do that. And somewhere in my 40s, I was going to look back and say, God, I could have done that instead. Yeah. So I, my dad says it was my quarter life crisis, right? So uh, I called my parents up and said, I was, I'm going to drop out of school and I'm going to, uh, and they're like, no, just finish out the term. And then you can, I actually ended up finishing the term and finishing my creative writing degree in a total of three years, got out of college in three years. Wow. And then went full-time into creating stuff and told myself if I ever screwed it up entirely, I'd just go back and finish off the electrical engineering degree Yeah. In, you know, in the, in two years. Of course, at this point, it's way too late. <laughs> I made myself useless to anything else. I don't remember. I, I was taking fourth order. I was taking uh, Calc 4 with fourth order differential linear equations and such. And I used so to it wouldn't that. be like fresh in your mind. Is right, what exactly. Yeah. No way. I mean, I was fluent in Spanish too, and I don't remember a lot of that anymore either. So um, over the years, you the things that you don't do atrophy, right? So yeah. Um, but yeah, I got into doing games instead because I just love doing games. And I, I fell in with the wrong crowd, essentially. You know, the guys who, uh, uh, like I told, Troy Denning was the guy who introduced me to Will and got me into doing this stuff, and Will Nebling, and then Marty Stever was one of my friends at Michigan, ended up going on to Capital City Comics and then running Wiz Kids as the, I think he was the vice president of Wiz Kids for a while, and uh, then has done all sorts of different stuff over the years. And, uh, you know, if I hadn't fallen in with the wrong crowd, I don't know, I might have done something else entirely, but, um, you know, they were the right people at the right time. I got lucky. Yeah. A lot of people will tell you that 
uh, it's just hard work, but man, luck means a lot. <laughs> you know, just there's a lot of people out there just as talented as I am who didn't manage to stick with it or whatever just because they weren't in the right place at the right time. And I, you, know, you just don't have any control over that. The trick, of course, is being is having enough perseverance that you may not be able to be there at the right time. If you can figure out where the right place is and stick around there long enough, hopefully you'll be there when the right time comes along. Right? Well, that's, I think that's great advice. You mentioned uh, a little bit ago, we, we talked about just briefly, you mentioned the Marvel RPG. Uh, and we spun yeah. around to that. And we've been told we can talk about it. Amazingly. I know. Actually, I think this is the first non-Marvel interview where they said, yeah, it's okay to talk about the playset. Now, of course, I'm not allowed to talk about anything that's you know in the works. Still in the works, yeah. So we can talk about the playtest. We can. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the game and how you got brought in to doing the playtest. I got a copy right here. All right. There you go. So this is a gorgeous is... cover, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, it's even Ivan Coelho, I think it's right. People listening to the podcast, go on wherever you, Amazon, Matt Forbeck's website, you can look it up. Just there we go. It's fantastic stuff. But um, what they did is they hired in a guy named Mike Caps and me, John Harrison. Mike was actually the um, uh, president or fairly high up at Epic Games, right? Which is the guys who developed Fortnite and Gears of War. And he was one of the original writers for a lot of that stuff. So the guy's got, he also has a doctorate in mathematics and went to MIT for undergrad. I mean, the guy knows his stuff, right? Uh, and then they brought me in to help out as well. So <laughs> uh, Mike, unfortunately, ended up having to leave the project, but he did a lot of the, the basic stuff, the math behind it. And I came in, you know, uh, tinkered with stuff as well. We did a lot of co-design at the beginning. Um, part of the idea was to come out with a like a 32 or 48 page booklet that would give people the idea behind the game and then as a play test, right? And then we would see how well, how well it went, see if people responded well to it. And then we do a, a full-on game a year later. But the problem is it turns out that a 48-page book is not a lot of room for, for, for a game book. So this actually ended up being 120 pages, which still looks pretty thin compared to, like, say, let's see. Yeah. Uh, like, this is a role-playing game I produced based on my fantasy novels, right, uh, for Cypher System, Money Cook Games does. Yeah. And that's a full-on role-playing game. It's 300 and some pages. Yeah. That's a 120-page uh, playtest book. Um, so the actual Marvel game, when it comes out, the full-on Marvel game, what we call the core rule book, will be somewhere in the three to 400-page range and hardcover, eight and a half by 11, all that kind of stuff, look like a regular D&D-style role-playing game. Right? Yeah. But meanwhile, we have this really snazzy-looking uh, softcover book, which is only 10 bucks, yeah. right? I mean, it's a pretty good deal. Some people don't like to play for uh, pay for playtesting, which I totally understand and respect. Don't. Right. Wait for the real game to come out, right? right? Uh, but if you're interested in this kind of stuff or you're excited about it and you want to help us out, we'd appreciate it. So, well, I mean, and for 10 bucks, I mean, if, yeah. if they gave you out a, uh, uh, you know, that book and said, you know, 50 bucks, that'd be one thing, but 10 bucks is, you know, it's, it's not a lot of money. And again, if you don't want to pay it, don't, right? It's, I mean, like, getting a gonna... it's like getting a graphic novel for 14 bucks. It's about the same size. Exactly. I mean, this novel. is actually for what it is. Uh, it's mostly paying for the printing, right? Right. And then we also have it on uh, Roll20 and Demiplane. We announced like two weeks before it all came out that there are digital partners and they're doing some great stuff with it too. Um, so uh, part of the development of it is, you know, we're coming up with all these powers and they have power sets and archetypes and all this kind of stuff. And we're like, how which characters are we going to have in the game? And they're like, uh, well, and then they showed me this cover that they had come up with. And I'm like, well, those are all the characters we're going to fit in. If we can fit in more, then we will. And it turned out, no, we couldn't fit in anymore. So we put these guys in the game. And actually, we, that meant that we cut some of the power sets that weren't going to be for those characters, right? Like 
Uh, we had I, we had developed the Invisible Woman entirely, and I'm like, well, that's great, but uh, none of these characters use invisibility power. So uh, since we're running shy on space, let's not put that in there, right? Right. Well, because uh, what we're really trying to test here is the combat system and the character design system, and see how how all that stuff works. The, then we're going to try to do some extra playtest rounds as we go further on too, right? Like uh, kind of like Wizards of the Coast does with their Unearthed Arcana stuff, where they say, "Hey, we want you to test this out for a few weeks and let us know what you think." Yeah, uh, and we're trying to get that ramped up. Marvel's been great to work with, but they are not a gaming company; they're a comic book company, right? Right. So again, one of the reasons that we want to do a 120-page, uh, and this was originally supposed to be 108 pages, even we bumped it up from there, but 100, uh, 102, 102 pages, whatever that it was, yeah. <laughs> reason we came on the 120 page book like this is because marvel knows how to print these right this is really easy for them to do this is this is uh something they've been doing for decades uh when it comes out to you know printing a hardcover eight and a half by 11 full color 300 some page book that's not a marvel thing that's something they usually license out to other people right uh and this is unusual in that uh this is not a game that's being licensed to anybody else it's actually being published by marvel directly um And, I, have know, to, I have to laugh. Somebody, yeah. uh, I, I normally don't do this. I normally don't mention yeah. the live stream chat, but somebody made a very good point. I mean, if their power is invisibility, how could you tell they weren't on the cover? That's true. <laughs> oh, oh. See, this is why the play test happens. If I'd only thought of that. That's, that's great. Oh, uh, now my brain's blowing. I, I need to. I need to rethink everything. So uh, yeah, um, normally, normally I don't mention the live no, stream that, chat. But how could I, you I not? Right. <laughs> like that's we would have gotten it to the Q in the Q and A after the podcast is over, but uh, I got I got to call that one right in right all off. The my, my non-existent Marvel power, you get a Marvel no prize for that, which which, uh, means, which is also not a prize. So there you go. Okay. Um, that was pretty good. Um, but yeah, so we, uh, we came up with this. We we put it out there. Uh, we're developing a new game as we go and all sorts of other powers and such too. Uh, it, it, honestly, at the moment, I'm just getting through playtest feedback, trying to get all that stuff in. And I'm not doing too much development on the game as far as coming up with new powers and characters because I want to see how we change things. So I don't have to redo everything over and over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, game design tends to be iterative in that you come up with an idea, you show it to people, they say, I love this part, that part sucks. And you keep doing this until they say, I love all these parts and maybe this little part here I don't like so much, right? Right. Can't make everybody happy about everything. But you want to try to uh, you know, make it a decent game that as many people like as possible. So doing a public play test like this, I often have of the opinion that it's impossible to properly play test a role-playing game. Right. Yeah. Because there's just too many permutations, and too much context that goes into things. But if you have any shot in doing it at all, the way to do it is to put it out there and have thousands of people play it. Right. 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 And get their feedback in, in a format that we can all collate and put together and then take a look at and say, OK, yeah, we boned this up entirely. We should have figured that out early. This part here, maybe everybody seems to like, so we're going to keep this. And that's one of the things I ask people when they're doing feedback too, is don't tell us just how we screwed things up. All right, that's the easy way. I mean, tell us that because we need to know, right? But tell us the stuff that you love too, because right. the tendency for any creative, whether it's, you know, you're, re- you're reading somebody, your friend's novel as they're working on it or uh, play testing their card game or whatever, the tendency if somebody doesn't tell you what's good about it is to throw that stuff out with the bad stuff. Yeah. Right. You know, literally the baby with the bathwater. Well, not literally, it's metaphorically. But you don't want to you don't want to tr- throw out the good stuff with the bad stuff. You want to have people say, this stuff I adored. This stuff sucks. That's fine. You know, be passionate about it if you want to. You can also be polite. That's okay. We don't want to. How does the how does the system 
as it stands now as a play test, how does it compare to some of the other more more well-known RPGs, whether it be like sure. a D&D or a Pathfinder or Mutants and Masterminds or a Savage Worlds? How does it compare as far as the system? It's goes? about that complexity level, right? And I know we went back and forth on this. I mean, it's maybe a little bit lighter than D&D, especially because D&D has got you know, decades and you know, even since fifth edition came out, uh, is had a lot of books put out for, right? So it's a little bit lighter than D&D in that sense, but it's, uh, uh, you know, we, th- I th- I, we had a lot of early discussions about, should we go like doing narrative stuff? Should we do like, you know, powered by the apocalypse type stuff? Should we do, uh, you know, just battle simulations like uh, a miniatures game essentially, right? And we didn't want to make it too hard on people. We don't want to make it too hard. For- what we really want to be able to say is if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons or Shadow or, uh, um, any very popular game these like like D&D or, or Pathfinder or uh, Savage Worlds or any of these games, this will not be like, oh my God, you've never seen anything like this before. This will be something you say, I get this immediately. I know okay. what I'm doing. This is familiar to me. Now we're going to throw some curveballs at you in the way that we do things. And obviously the power is going to be different, all that kind of stuff. And obviously it's in the Marvel Universe. So we get to have a lot of fun with that kind of stuff. But you do not have to learn everything from scratch or say, you know, part of the problem with getting people to even pick up a role-playing game is a lot of people look at it and say, what the hell are you talking about? Right. right. So we don't want to alienate people that way. We want them, we want people who already like this kind of stuff to say, I understand this. And then we'll play with you from there. Right. Um, so, you know, this is not going to be uh, a groundbreaking mechanics in the way that you're like, I've got, I, I love those kind of games, right? Like Fiasco is one of my favorite games that Jason Morningstar put out. And it's just an amazing stunning uh, example of how to reinvent role-playing games, right? Uh, that's not what we're trying to do here. We're not trying to reinvent role-playing games. We're trying to put out the best role-playing game we can for Marvel, right? Best Marvel role-playing game. Um, so uh, set your expectations at that. That's what okay. I'm aiming for, right? Okay. Is, um, there, is there something that you can um, really really be proud of when you're looking at this from your perspective to be like, this play test is out there and I can't wait for you guys to see this this and this or this character or how this build works or character creation or anything like that well you know because it's not done i'm not terribly proud of any okay okay yeah you Um, can say that yeah because it's not finished right and right honestly as a game designer and as a creator i'm often not really proud of my things until they're just about done and then i hate them right it's not because they're terrible it's just at that point i don't want to see them anymore i'm like yeah this is done this don't show it to me again it's it's good put it out there in the world and then of course you have to go through editing and you have to proofread it and all this kind of stuff and by the time you're done with it you're like oh i just don't want to see it again and then you go out to conventions and you get jazzed again because people are like let's play the game you're like yes and you're like oh this is actually fun i did something cool you know yeah but um i haven't got to the point where i hate the game yet which means i know it's not done right okay. Um, but when I, when I do get to that point, I'll be like, okay, I've done as much with this as I possibly can. I'm going to have to have other people. We're going to have proofreaders and editors and all this kind of stuff, but we're not at that point yet. That said, I think there's some neat stuff in the game. I mean, there, to answer your question originally, I think that the, uh, the D616 system that we got going with the, the rolling of the dice, being able to manipulate the dice with edges and troubles, that's kind of a neat concept okay. right? to be able to. So, so for instance, the way the game works is that you have a, instead of rolling a D20 or a D100 or, or whatever, or playing cards, or whatever, you roll three six-sided dice, which are like these, yeah. right? These are what I use in my playtest games. And uh, one of them is an off-color die, right? And that's because you have to distinguish that as your marble die. Okay. On the marble die, if you roll a one, 
that becomes a uh, fantastic result, right? Like Fantastic Four or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that means it's something special happens. That means you can trigger off a special power or a special ability from your power, or it can give you double damage, or it can do all sorts of different things, right? Um, and it also counts as a six. So that so that means that the best roll you can get is a six on each of the other dice and a one for your Marvel dice, or a okay. six, one, six, which is an inside Marvel joke to all the people who understand, and probably those who saw uh, Doctor Strange this weekend, they talk about how the main Marvel Earth is 616. Oh, okay. Right? So, and that was a joke that Marvel came up with. I forget, maybe it was Alan Moore. I forget, it was a long time ago, but the idea was that uh, DC always had, like, what's the most important Earth? It's Earth 1. And, you know, the older Golden Age stuff, that's Earth 2. And then we have Earth 3 over here, right? And the Marvel guy's like, no, we're just one of a bunch of different multiverses. We're, in fact, this one is 616, right? So it's more like an area code than an actual, you know, sequence yeah. of numbers. But that works great when you're using six, three six-sided dice. Exactly, right? Um, and the neat thing about it is that we also have this thing called Edges of Trouble. So it's kind of like adds and advantages and disadvantages of Dungeons and Dragons. So okay. if you do something or if you have a power or whatever that gets you an advantage or an edge, then you get to re-roll one of your dice, right? If you've got if you're if you have trouble, like things are going badly for you, the game master or the narrator, as we call them, can re-roll one of your dice instead, right? Okay. And he's got to balance out. So if you got three things going really well for you and two going bad, you get to roll one. Okay. Edge, right. Um, and that means you can manipulate those dice and you can manage to you know, role play things and get yourself in a good position where the context says everything's going right for you. Well, probably it'll go wrong later, but everything's going right for you now. Um, that means you get to reroll those dice and try to help yourself trigger off those special effects in your powers. And that's kind of a neat way to play the game and also to, to figure out how to get those extra effects from your powers to come out. So pretty happy with that. Do you have, do you have problems when you're like, okay, we've got these characters and you're building them and you have to deal with, you know, how powerful they are in comparison to each other. And then somebody's like, well, no, that can't be this. And, you know, that has to be changed because this guy's technically more powerful than them. And then, you know, you're going to have fans who, you know, come back and show examples. Do you have to deal with a lot of that stuff and a lot of like the going to Marvel and being like, hey, this needs to be fixed. Or they're like, nope, change this. Yep. Oh, yeah, we're already going through that. In fact, we're probably going to announce some stuff for some revisions coming out next week or two. But um, the idea is that, I want people to be able to create any character they want to with the rules as they stand, right? The problem is, the funny part really is that a lot of the characters people create are going to be stronger and better role-playing game characters than the traditional Marvel characters. Okay. And that's because they're optimizing for the rule set. Whereas the writers from Marvel are not optimizing for the rule set. They're optimizing for story. We're going to be able to recreate those characters in the story, but you might look at that and say, that's a suboptimal build. And you'd be absolutely correct. Right. Because again, we're trying to model this stuff. We're coming up with a way to model it, but there are going to be corners of the game then that uh, you can expand into in ways that Spider-Man never would. Right. right. But your, your spider dude or spider, whatever you're playing would be happy to. Right. Uh, you're going to be able to find exploits that are not narratively correct, but game correct, right? And that's actually something I try to talk about in the in the um, playtest rulebook. I'm in a section on the core rulebook where, you know, it's about the spirit of the game. It's about what you're trying to create here. If it's really all about min-maxing for you, go for it. Have fun. I mean, what you do at your own table is your own business. I don't care, right? But to me, when you're coming up with a game, you're playing a game, you should be trying to play in the spirit of the game, Right. Uh, to give you an example, when we started playing D&D &D with my eldest son, they were, uh, he and his friends were like, how do we make Molotov cocktails and gunpowder? I'm like, <laughs> well, sure, technically you can do that, but 
that's not really what the game's about, right? It's about killing people with swords and spells and whatever, you know, defending the, the realm and whatever. It's not about how can I engineer a Gatling gun out of this, right? right. Um, and you can certainly play that game. In fact, you know, the shotguns and sorcery game I'm, I, I got here, I got the t-shirt for, yeah. is about including that kind of stuff in a, in a fantasy setting and how what that does to warp it. Um, but if you're playing straight vanilla D&D, that's not where you should be going, right? And similarly, you can do all sorts of wacky stuff with Marvel. I mean, obviously, Marvel is, you know, not just X-Men stories, not just Fantastic Four, not just Spider-Man or Avengers. They tell so many different stories over the past 80-some years, 85 years now, um, that, you know, we need to be able to encompass all that. But if you're trying to tell a superhero story like that, there are certain things that are, uh, you know, there are more Marvel than other settings. And maybe we're, we try to encourage you to lean into that, even if, and we try to make the rules help you with that. But if they don't always do that, we want you guys as players to also to reinforce that essentially. So, uh, so we try to give people a little bit of coaching on that too. I mean, there's ways to break a game, but role-playing games are, shouldn't be about breaking a game, right? right? It shouldn't right. be about, it's not like Magic the Gathering or whatever. You're like, I'm trying to find the biggest exploit where I can just figure out how to you know, defeat yeah. my opponent. Because yeah. it's not about defeating an opponent. Right. It's about creating a story together with your friends and having fun, especially when you're superheroes. Exactly. Right? I, it might be about defeating Hydra. Sure. OK, that's fine. Right. right. But, you know, somebody's going to play a game where they're all Hydra characters or they're all scrolls or whatever. And right. More power to you. I'm, again, uh, a lot of people like playing as bad guys. That's just a, a yeah. little side thing that usually goes wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Are you going to be at any uh, any events? Uh, yes. You mentioned you mentioned off stream that you're going to be at Gen Con. I always I never miss Gen Con. Uh, last year was like my 40th Gen Con in a row. I believe. I've been going since I was a little kid. Um, well, not that little. I was 13. Whatever. I'm an old man now. Uh, I'm going to be at Kublai Khan out in San Francisco on Memorial Day weekend. I'm a special guest there, which I'm really excited about. Okay. Hang out with some good friends there. Uh, I'm going to be at Nexus Game Fair, which is in. Uh, Milwaukee, the weekend of June 23rd through 26th. I am hopefully going to be at Comic-Con, although Marvel's still debating about what their official presence there is going to be like, but I should be out there at some point anyway. That's in uh, the last part of July, July 21st through 24th. And I'll be at Gen Con for sure, which I never miss. I, uh, I'm part of the writer's track. There. There's something called the Writer's Symposium. So I go out there and I do panels on novels and things like that. And I also do some game design stuff. Um, looking to run a charity event uh, for Munchkin where we're going to play a game in honor of my friend Andrew Hackard, who was the Munchkin czar who passed away last year. Um, we're also going to be at, uh, I might be at Worldcon in Chicago because why the heck not? It's in Chicago. It's just down the street from me. Yeah. Might be in New York City Comic Con. Because again, that's Marvel's hometown. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Gamehole Con is another one I never miss, which is in um, Madison, Wisconsin, on the usually the third weekend in October. So October twentieth through twenty third. That's a fantastic show too. If you get a chance to go, go to that one. I I generally stick to shows either where somebody brings me out or it's local stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Gen Con is my only exception. I just always go to Gen Con, even if they told me I couldn't go to Gen Con, I would find a fake ID and a mask and a, ba- <laughs> and a beard, a cheap goatee, and work you know cheat my way in somehow. But um, make yourself Gen Con, look like gonna, someone else. They will carry me out of Gen Con feet first. That's how it's going to happen. So. <laughs> and your website is forbeck.com. Yes, assuming it's still up. I actually got a notice just before we went on and said, your website's down. Then it was, your website's up. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah. Well, it was up all day today when I saw it. Good, I was, good. When I was double checking. 
uh, F-O-R-B-E-C-K.com. You can find me on Twitter at M Forbeck. You can find me on Facebook at Forbeck, I think. Just... Yeah, backslash Forbeck. There you go. And uh, Instagram, I'm, uh, I think, M Forbeck there as well. So Indeed, oh. indeed. Awesome, awesome. Well, and I'm friendly and don't bite very hard, so it's okay. So, so everybody go and say hello to Matt when you're at any of those events. Exactly. Oh, please do, actually. I mean, that's a lot of the fun. Um, <laughs> this is how I learned how to be very tough about playtesting. I came out of the game called Brave New World, which was a superhero role-playing game back mm-hmm. in 1999. And I remember at, I was at a convention, I think, in St. Louis, and a fan buttonholed me I, and told me in excruciatingly painful detail what I had done wrong by his piece <laughs> for like a half hour. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. You know, go, uh, thanks. You know, <laughs> After all, you're like, you know, it's, you know I'll, I'll let me buy the game from you. I'm going to burn it. It's okay. That one copy, we're just going to get rid of. Um, but, you know, people pay their money. They want to have to be able to ex- express themselves in that. I'm not paid to listen, but I am, you know, as part of what I do, I want to, I want the game to be better. Right. And that's right. why we're doing the public play test like this. So uh, if you guys want to give me feedback on the Marvel does have a place for you to give that it's marvel.com slash RPG go there. They actually have an official place. They want to do that. I really am not going out there wandering around asking for a lot of advice directly on the game because Marvel's got a lot of very expensive lawyers that they, uh, they want to make sure that people go through the website because when you do that, you sign a waiver saying, if you give us an idea, you're not going to sue us at some point for saying, right. yeah, you're right. We should have added a plus three instead of a plus four to that. Right. So, um, so go to their official, their official. We're not trying to steal from you, but there's going to be probably a hundred people that give us the same kind of feedback for a thousand people. Right. And we need to be able to use that freely without uh, having people say they stole that. Give it to us freely. We would appreciate that. Honestly, I would appreciate it too. Well, and then when you see it, you can just be like, oh, I wrote that in and just be happy that uh, it got in, <laughs> you know, that it got in. Lie. Tell everybody you did that part and we, I won't argue. So there we go. <laughs> and it could be true. I mean, we're probably going to get the same feedback from like, you know, 10, 15 different people or whatever. Right. I, and we really are looking for that. I mean, I try to be humble about this because, you know, a game design, again, is an iterative process where uh, you really don't know how it's going to work out until it meets the fan base, until it meets the player base, right? You can yeah. try, test it as many times as you want to at home. I usually start out just by myself playing around the table, right? And I move on to playing with my kids and I move on to playing with my friends outside the house. And then we do cold play testing where we send it out to people who've never seen it before. And then we'd go wide like we do now. It's a long process. By the time you guys have seen it, it's gone through several steps already. Doesn't mean it's perfect. We know that. So give us the feedback and let us know where it's not perfect and what you love about it. Awesome. And we'll have to have you come back so you can talk more with us about some of your other stuff. We didn't get to talk sure. about shotguns and sorcery. We didn't yep. get to talk about your endless quest D&D stuff. We didn't get to talk about some of your other novels, Brave New World, we just briefly mentioned. So we'll have to have you back to talk about all of that stuff. And maybe if there's more developments on... Uh, on the Marvel RPG system. We'll have to have you back. I'm for that. sure there will be for, for years to come. So there we go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, May 30th, we're joined by author, editor, writer, Aaron Evans. She wrote D and D's brimstone angel series, uh, God cataclysm and others, as well as her work with the idle champions video game. And you can see her on Twitch's dungeon scrollers channel. Uh, so that'll be May 30th, June 13th. It's our anniversary episode. And we're going to be joined by urban fantasy author, Hunter Blaine. He wrote the Preternatural Chronicles, which is a really amazing urban fantasy story. Um, main character is a the last vampire on the world. So make sure you tune in June 13th for that. 
Um, also be sure to subscribe to the show and get future episodes notified to you. Also make sure to rate and review the show. It means a lot and it helps us and helps our guests. And that's what's really important. So for Matt Forbeck, I'm Nick Sampson. Thank you for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs> <laughs>